You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. Notice they lay aside their God-given glory to add to His glory, ascribing all glory to Him. Now, why would they do that? Well, simply they realize that they owe all to Him who sits upon the throne. And they confess that He alone is worthy. They realize that they owe a debt to God Almighty that they cannot possibly repay. Every now and then, in the Bible, we read about individuals falling down in worship when they see an angel. This, of course, is quickly met with rebuke from the angels who firmly stand by the conviction that all glory is due to God. Yes, even angels and heavenly beings give glory to God. In today's message, Pastor Mike reflects on the worship of the heavenly host. In his study, you'll learn how even the creatures that we would hold in high regard humble themselves before the throne of God. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Revelation chapter 4 as he continues his message, The Throne Room of Heaven. I remember what you said, you returned that I might live in my Father's This rainbow, a complete circle, not broken by the line of the horizon, with all of its beautiful colors, represents another covenant of promise and hope. And this one, the promise, the covenant, has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, God, in the Word, in several different places, promised that one day the earth would be his sons. That which was lost in the Garden of Eden, by Adam and Eve, through their rebellion and sin, will be reclaimed by Jesus. In fact, as we get into the next chapter, chapter 5, that's exactly what is being depicted for us there. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll talk about that next time. So God promised that one day the earth would be his son's footstool, and everything would be in subjection to him. Like, for example, in the 110th Psalm, In verse 1, here's a cross-reference. God the Father speaking to God the Son. And he declares, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so the throne in heaven, it's encircled rainbow, given as a pledge of God's faithfulness to this end. Because remember now, this is a preliminary uh, action. Uh, It's all about what God is about to do. And that is purge the earth and execute judgment, making the earth ready 
for the soon return of Jesus Christ and his reign. But then notice also in verse 4, let's go on now in our text. Around the throne were 24 thrones, or sub-thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders. Now who are these guys? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some possible explanations, but we're not quite sure. But notice the way that they are recommended to us here. Clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Okay, so now we are introduced to not only the focal point in heaven, which is God's throne, but then the sub-thrones, 24 in all, that are located around God's throne, these sub-thrones. And there's 24 of them, and there are 24 individuals who are sitting upon these sub-thrones. Now, who are these individuals? Well, again, we're not quite sure. It, it's been suggested that they may be faithful representatives of both the Old and the New Testament. For example, uh, it could be the 12 sons of Jacob, representing the Old Testament. It could be 12 prophets, also representing uh, the Old Testament. It could be the 12, pa uh, 12 patriarchs, also representing the Old Testament. It could, as far as the New Testament goes, it could be the 12 apostles. You know, who knows exactly who it is. But probably it, it, there are going to be some individuals who were profoundly, widely, powerfully used by God. So it, it's open to speculation. We're not quite sure. But notice the way that they are uh, presented to us here. They are clothed in white raiment. And of course, the color white speaks of their perfect righteousness and their purity. Remember, whoever these guys are, they've been raptured. And thus being raptured, they're now with Jesus. Not only are they with Jesus, they've now become like Jesus. They're totally saved from the possibility of sin. What a day that's going to be. Could you imagine that? When we're actually we're raptured, we're standing before the Lord. Not only are we able to see Him, but we become like Him. And we also are saved from the possibility of sin. No more tempted by temptation. Let me give you a couple of cross-references for this from the Scriptures. For example, in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, in verses 20 and 21, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, and according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let me give you another cross-reference. 1 John chapter 3, and verse 2. Beloved, that's who you are. Now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So what a wonderful prospect. What a bright future to look forward to. But let's go back to our text. Notice also they have these golden crowns upon their heads. Notice there in verse 4. What do those crowns represent? Well, I believe that they speak of their royal dignity. You see, they've been washed from their sins. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And thus now they are presented as kings and priests. Aren't we told exactly that? In 1 Peter in chapter 2, 
in uh, verse uh, 9, we're told that we are a royal priesthood, that we've been saved, and uh, we've been redeemed. And so that's what these uh, golden crowns represent. They've been crowned with the royal authority, which is common to all saints there in heaven. Now, that brings us now to our third point. And if you're taking notes, write this down. And that is the great purge. Let's go back to our text in verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So under this heading, the great purge. Okay, so what is being depicted here for us? Well, it's chaos. Things are being made ready to execute judgment. Things are a brewing. A dreadful storm is about to burst upon the earth. These seven spirits of God, as we've already uh, determined uh, in one of our previous uh, studies here in the book of Revelation, and as a cross-reference, I drew your attention to Isaiah chapter 11, where we have listed there the sevenfold workings of the Holy Spirit as they rested upon Jesus, as demonstrated by uh, Jesus. You know, also something else that's significant. Remember, in numerology, certain numbers are uh, have uh, represent certain things in the scriptures, and the number seven is the number of completeness. Okay, so the completeness, the the full working of the Holy Spirit that rested upon Jesus. We've already established that in one of our our uh, past uh, uh, messages. So the sevenfold workings of God's Holy Spirit, the fullness, the completeness. But here, the Holy Spirit is being featured as he's taking his place and as in judgment. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit taking on his judicial character. As again, God is about to pour out his judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. He's prepared to execute judgment. Now this is quite different from what the Holy Spirit is all about in this present dispensation of grace. In this present dispensation of grace, he's often featured as a dove. Remember when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers at Pentecost, he ascended upon them like a dove. Whereas in this text of Scripture, he's pictured as fire. So notice the difference between the two. It's a picture in contrast. You have the dove versus the fire. And then in verse 6, the, latter part, uh, the first part of verse 6, we are told... And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now, folks, when we're raptured and we're standing before the throne, one day, this is where you and I will be standing as well. Now, what does this sea of glass represent? Well, one writer, one uh, commentator, actually uh, draws our attention to and points us to, in the book of Exodus in chapter 30, the laver in the temple, and then 1 Kings in chapter 7, and the sea in Solomon's temple. And what were those items used for? Well, they were for priestly purification. But you see, in heaven, and remember, we are a royal priesthood, but in heaven, the sea is solidified. In heaven, where there is a fixed state of holiness and purity, there's no need for cleansing. Heaven is the place of perfection, he goes on to declare. There the saints will have entered into perfect sanctification. And the backslidings of the heart and the failures of the flesh are forever past. 
So it's a good explanation. And possibly that is the reference to and what this suggests, the sea of glass. But then notice also, and this brings us to our fourth point, we are also introduced to these four living uh, creatures, four beasts there in the latter part of verse 6. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front as well as in the back. So these living uh, creatures. Now the idea here with all of these eyes in the front and the back, and uh, I think that the point is is that who, whatever these beasts are, they're probably some higher order of angelic being creations of uh, God, are able to see all things with great accuracy. And I think that's what all of these eyes uh, represent. Another chief feature concerning these living creatures is that they're standing and that they are ready. And I want to emphasize that word ready to render service to God in any part of the universe as God seems fit uh, to dispatch them. And, uh, and by the way, how does any of us make ourselves ready, even as these uh, living creatures are ready? Well, discernment, uh, they see things as they really uh, are, and they make themselves ready. They're willing. When God says, move, yeah, they just get up and, and move. And this is the way that we make ourselves uh, ready. But then notice also concerning these creatures in verse 7, the first living creature, notice the way that they're described here, was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So it's quite a sight here, isn't it? But they possess, the, but the idea here, I think, is that they possess the strength of a lion, right? Uh, the stamina of an ox, the intelligence of a man, and they're swift like an eagle. But it seems like one of their main functions is worship. And it seems like that's the responsibility given to them there in heaven. Because notice in verse 8, we read, uh, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes, we've already established that, around and within, and they do not rest day or night, and this is the chorus that they sing and lead all of the individuals who are standing before and around the throne. So, by the way, this is the song that we're going to be singing when we get to heaven. So here we have the chorus laid out for us. Holy, holy, holy. No, and, and you know what? Before we even go on here, I want you to take note of the fact the three holies, which represents the triune God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Holy Spirit is holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So it seems like one of their main functions, these living creatures that is, is worship. And uh, that is worshiping the triune God. Now, you know what, these living creatures, you know, if I could depart from the text, just, just an observation, something that I was thinking about. You know, these living creatures provide a wonderful example for us of what a worship leader should be like. And so Julie, take special note of this and, and pass this along to any of the other folks in your worship community that may not be listening in. Uh, like these living creatures with all of the eyes in the front and in the back, 
They have the capacity to be able to see things clearly, to see things through God's lens, to see things accurately. And they ought to be able to portray those through the songs that they sing and the words that they share in the beginning of the worship service and then going from one song to another to set up all of those uh, songs. They should be intimately connected with the holiness of God. Remember, they cried out, holy, holy, holy. So they themselves ought to be committed to living a life of holiness. Not only holiness, but the justice of God as well. And also, as such was the case with these living creatures, they were ready. Uh, they were standing ready to render service to God in any part of the universe. And likewise, I believe worship leaders need to just make themselves available uh, to, Lord, to God, especially in this wonderful occupation of leading in worship. So, just a little side note, something that I wanted to uh, mention. And by the way, I believe that all of the members in our worship community fit perfectly into that category. So, before the fury of God's wrath is poured out, and that, by the way, begins in chapter 6, so we'll get into it in another two weeks. We'll talk about the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, beginning with the uh, appearing of the Antichrist upon the scene, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, just following the chronological order of things, we'll, we'll get to that in uh, two weeks. And uh, so, But anyway, before the fury of God's wrath is poured out, His holiness is magnified. Holy, holy, holy. And you see, it is because of His holiness that God must judge sin. You see the connection between the two? Okay, now with that said, let's, re let's read the remaining verses of chapter 4. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, the guys that, or gals, whoever they may be, who are sitting on these sub-thrones, notice, they fall down before Him, that is, before God Almighty, who sits on the throne and worships Him, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist, and were created, that is, were created for your pleasure. So quite a scene that's being played out for us here in these final remaining verses of chapter 4. Now, so these individuals, whoever they are, who are sitting on these sub-thrones, and again, I would put them in a category, of some, I don't know if there is such a thing as a super saint, but probably that's who we would consider these individuals, super saints. Notice they lay aside their God-given glory to add to His glory, ascribing all glory to Him. Now, why would they do that? Well, simply they realize that they owe all to Him who sits upon the throne. And they confess that He alone is worthy. They realize that they owe a debt to God Almighty that they cannot possibly repay. So isn't it amazing? Here on earth, we want to get credit for what we do, for the things that we accomplish. We want to get the pats on the back. We want to hear, good job. You know, But in heaven, the rewards that we receive, the crowns, 
we take them off of our heads and we lay them at the feet of God Almighty. Now, before we close out, I want to go back to uh, verse 11. And this is just a side note. And I think that this is very important. And I think that you really appreciate this. I just want you to note that there are no songs or mention of evolution in heaven. In heaven, all acknowledge God as the source and the sustainer of the universe and all life. Because notice in the chorus that they sing there in verse 11, For you created things, by your will they exist and were created. So there's no mention of evolution, there's no songs about evolution in heaven. So just a side note, a side note something that I wanted to draw your attention to. Well anyway, this is the scene which John the Beloved saw in heaven. Jesus worshipped as the creator of the earth, upon which he is about to pour out divine judgment, the seven years of tribulation. And his enemies, yes, they have raged against him, but he is unmoved, he is untouched, he is unscathed, and he's ready to purge, he's ready to root out, he's ready to cleanse the earth of sin before he comes again to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now, as we close out, I want to take you back to verse 1. And remember there in verse 1, John saw this door in heaven, the door through which he entered into uh, heaven, and that took him into God's throne room, which we've already firmly established, that door is Jesus. Jesus himself referred to uh, himself in that way. So, the point is, and this is the final thought that I want to leave you with, if we enter through that door, that is Jesus, we'll talk about how we do that in just a moment, you can experience a little bit of heaven upon the earth right now. We can be saved from judgment. We can be clothed in righteousness. All of the things that we've been talking about. We can be provided for, protected. But listen, you have to go through that door. You have to make a decision, a choice, to open the door of your heart and let Jesus in. Now, how do we do that? By just, first of all, acknowledging that Jesus is that door, that Jesus is the Savior. And where does that begin? Well, we just, first of all, if you've never made that decision before, if you've never entered into or through that door, the first step that you need to take is you need to confess your sin. And you need to recognize and acknowledge Jesus as the Savior for your sin. How that He died in your place for your sin. And then we need to invite Christ to come, not only to be our Savior, but the Lord of our lives. And then lastly, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to live our lives for Christ. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh my heart. That's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. We're so glad you joined Pastor Mike today to study the book of Revelation, the final book in the Bible. If you'd like to listen to more, just visit our website, harvestnyc.org. 
You can also subscribe to the In My Father's House with Mike Finizio podcast. Just search for it on your favorite podcast platform. We'd love for you to join us for worship this weekend at Harvest Christian Fellowship. We meet at 11 a.m., and you can reserve your seat online by clicking on Contact at HarvestNYC.org. We're located in Midtown Manhattan, and there's easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. If you're not in the area or if you're just unable to attend in person right now, we'd still like to have you be a part of our time of studying God's Word. We're live streaming our services each week, and you can connect on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. If you'd like to catch up with previous messages, check out our services through our Vimeo link, or you can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Links to all these are available at our website, harvestnyc.org. Before we end our time with you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us in this ministry. Would you prayerfully consider financially supporting In My Father's House? Donations of any size can be made securely on our website, harvestnyc.org. Thanks for praying about this, and thanks for joining us today on In My Father's House.